0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. The deity of Jesus, how do you respond? When you've ever been, or if you've ever been in a discussion where the thought is entertained that Christ is a creation of God like the angels are creations of God, How do you counter that? When someone says that Jesus did not become Christ until he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and then the Spirit of Christ left him when he died on the cross, how do you respond to that? A few years ago, in an interview that was conducted at a conference, R.C. Sproul, who has gone on to be with the Lord now, probably one of the greatest minds in the Reformed Christian faith, was asked the question, what is the greatest challenge that the church faces today? What is the greatest challenge that the Christian church faces today? And without hesitation, his response was, to know who Jesus Christ really is. The greatest challenge of the Christian church today is to know who Jesus Christ really is. He went on to talk about some of the things that have come about in, oh gosh, the last 40, 50 years. At least in my experience in the church in the last 40 or 50 years the ever-eroding theology, doctrine of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Even to the point where there are some churches, some people in churches, and some theologians in our schools, who have reduced, and that's not a good word, they have altered their understanding of Jesus Christ to accommodate the philosophy of the world rather than to appreciate the truth of God's word. I remember... When I graduated the first time from seminary, I graduated three times, but the first time I graduated from seminary, there was a poll taken by the Southern Baptist Convention, and the poll was issued to graduating seniors from the seminary, uh, On and the questions were certain doctrinal statements. Do you believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back again? So on and so on and so on and so on. And it was amazing and appalling to me to realize how many graduating seniors from seminary, from our seminaries, our six seminaries, did not believe it was necessary to honor the virgin birth of Christ. It didn't make any difference if he was virgin born or not. It was amazing and appalling to me of those graduating seniors who did not believe Jesus lived a sinless life. There were those who also stated they did not believe that Jesus died on the cross. He simply swooned. He simply passed out. He simply lost consciousness, was taken off the cross, placed in the tomb, in the cool, damp tomb. He regained consciousness and walked out of the tomb. It was amazing to me and appalling to me how many who believed that Jesus did die on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. He's still in the grave. But the tomb is empty. Well, people are looking in the wrong tomb. It was amazing to me and appalling. How many graduating seniors did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? If he did rise from the dead, it was a phantom, a ghost, but not in a glorified physical body, and he's not coming again the world is just going to continue on until it runs out of steam and then it will destroy itself. The greatest challenge that the church faces today is to know who Jesus really is is. Turn in your Bibles, if you will please, to the book of Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2. Stand with me in honor of God's word, if you will please. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name, the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you say amen to that? May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. You may be seated. Now, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we came to this passage a number of Sundays ago as we're working our way through the book of Philippians, and I know it's taking a lot longer than I anticipated, but I know it, it's not taking any longer than you anticipated because you've been around me too long, but there are certain texts in Scripture that demand our more earnest and intensive study I know that in a lot of time- ta- in a lot of with a lot of people reading through the books of the Bible in order to get your your schedule done by the end of the year is an admirable thing, and I encourage you to read your Bible through, read it through again and again and again, but there are certain texts that we need to spend time on, and it's not uh, it's not beneficial to us if we just skim through the Scripture and not focus in on certain Texts in scripture that are meaty, uh, that are diamonds in the rough, that are profound when we stop and think about it and consider it on an in depth level. And one of those texts is the one that I've just read, verses 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. It is so rich in biblical theology, that it commands our attention on a more in-depth level than just forming a couple of sermons out of it and then moving on. So I want to explore with you just what occurred and what Jesus experienced, what Christ experienced when he left the courts of heaven as the Son of God and became Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And that's contained here in these few verses. Now, it doesn't explain everything that we want to know. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does Express and explain to a certain degree the dynamic of Christ becoming human. The Son of God becoming the Son of Man. The one who left the glories of God's courts, God the Father's courts in heaven, and was clothed in human flesh and dwelt among us for 33 years. Now, we spoke a few Sundays ago on the importance of having the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul encouraged the Philippian Christians to have the mind of Christ Jesus if their joy in the Lord was to be made complete. And you find that in verses 1 through 4. Of Philippians chapter two, therefore, if if there is any consolation in Christ, consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one. Mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. These are basic, practical expressions of Christian joy in the Lord. They are basic, fundamental expressions of Christian joy in the Lord. They're the things that Christians experience and express when the joy of the Lord inhabits their spirit. Well, what. What do those things mean? We expressed those to you a number of Sundays ago, but let me just state them as we go through. Having the same love for others as we have for the Lord. When the joy of the Lord fills your spirit, fills your soul, you will have love for one another as you have love for the Lord. Putting, uh, let's see, being in tune with Jesus Christ and with each other, that's being in one accord. Being in tune with Jesus Christ and in tune with each other. Thinking together on the one thing. A lot of us want to major on the minors. The Apostle Paul challenged us as he challenged the Philippian Christians, let's major on the majors. We ought to have one mind, and that one mind focuses on the one thing. And what is the one thing? The Lord Jesus Christ. Putting away selfish ambition and conceit. Expressing an attitude of humility. Honoring others above honoring others yourself, caring for others as you care for yourself, these are the things that a Christian will experience and will express in the fellowship of the saints and in his own or her own personal Christian life. We know that joy comes from the Lord, happiness is circumstantial, You're happy when certain things go your way. You're happy when you win the lottery. You're happy when you buy a new house or buy a new car. You're happy when friends celebrate your birthday with you. You're happy when you celebrate an anniversary. A lot of circumstantial things make us happy, but true joy comes from the Lord. True joy is not circumstantial. It's relational. When you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have joy, and the world can't take that away. The world cannot take that away. So we know that joy comes from the Lord. But how do you receive it? How do you incorporate it into your life? Well, look at verse five, Philippians one, uh, Philippians um, two, five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we spent some time two Sundays ago on the theology of the mind. What does that mean to have the mind of Christ? And we realized that there were three aspects to having this mind of Christ. And those three aspects are humility before God, service to the Lord God, and obedience to the Lord God, three aspects to having the mind of Christ, because this typifies who Jesus was here in the flesh. He was humble before God and before others. He served the Lord and he served others, and he was obedient to the Lord in his life. However, there is much more to Philippians two five through eleven than just the mind of Christ. There's a whole expression of who Jesus Christ is and all that he experienced when the fullness in the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman and born under the law and so I want to explore just one verse with you this morning the sixth verse Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 and we'll read it here Follow along. Go back to verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, why is this important for us to understand? And why should we spend a certain amount of time exploring this one particular verse. Well, we're not going to really explore the one particular verse. We're going to explore three words in this one particular verse. You knew that was coming. And one of the reasons why it is important for us to spend time in this particular verse is because there are far too many religions... Far too many religions in our world, and some of them passing themselves off as being Christian, evangelical Christian, even. Far too many religions, and some passing themselves off as Christian, who do not honor, do not hold to the biblical doctrines of the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty. Of God the Father, and so on, and so on, and so on. This text, Philippians 2, 6, along with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, verse 14, and Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, state, they state definitively that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he is who the Bible says he is, that he is fully God and he is fully man. Fully God and fully man. And this is most important for us because if Jesus, listen, if Jesus is not who the Bible says he is, then there is no salvation and we're all condemned in our sins. If Jesus was just a charlatan, if Jesus was just a good moral teacher, if Jesus was just a religious philosopher, if Jesus was just a rabble-rouser, if he was simply a leader of a new religion, then he is not the Christ. He is not the Son of God. His death on the cross availed us nothing insofar as the forgiveness of sin is concerned. We are still lost in our trespasses and sins, and we're all damned to hell separated from God for all eternity. If we don't understand who Jesus really is, then we forfeit the opportunity of being saved and having eternal life with God in heaven. So, I want us to take a look here at what the Apostle Paul wrote In this text, I want you to note first of all the word being, B E I N G, being, who being in the form of God. The word being, it means to be infinitely. It doesn't mean simply to exist, it's a present active participle. It means to exist infinitely now you exist and I exist but there is coming a time when I'm not going to exi- exist in this life anymore there's going to come a time when you're not going to exist in this life anymore And you may very well say, well, there was a time when Jesus died on the cross, so he didn't exist anymore. Ah ha ha! He was resurrected from the dead. And he was resurrected in a glorified, physical, human body. But even that, there was a time when he existed not being a human, he existed in eternity past. Being in the form of God and being equal with God. The idea of being here is to exist infinitely. It is to exist without beginning and without end. So being in the form of God and being equal with God, whatever that means, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute, being in the form of God and being equal with God is what Jesus Christ was and is infinitely. There was no beginning in his being in the form of God, there was no beginning in him being equal with God, and there is no end to his being in the form of God and equal with God. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Keep your thumb there in Philippians 2. Let's go back to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 states the same thing that the Apostle Paul states in Philippians 2, 6. He's just using some different words. And words are very important. We need to understand them, and we'll explore some of those meanings here in just a second. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is known as the prologue to John's gospel. And in this prologue, John draws the reader into the eternal aspects of Christ. The eternal being of Christ. Now, I don't have time to explain all of these words, but I'll just simply state what they mean. Beginning. In the beginning, he says, was the word. What is the word beginning referring to? It means it refers to a period of time. It refers to, well, there was no time. It refers to that time before creation. It harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The idea there that Moses wrote in Genesis 1-1 was that God existed before creation. He had to exist before creation because he was the one who created creation. And so he had to be before creation. He had to exist before creation. And John is saying the same thing about Christ. In the beginning was the Word. Before creation ever started, before creation ever came into being, Christ was. Christ existed. Then he uses the word logos, Word. And it refers to Christ who is the full expression of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the apostle wrote, you don't need to turn there, you just need to reference it, but in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, the apostle writes, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, In other words, the apostle is saying here, Jesus Christ is God's last word to you and to me. He is the fullest expression of all that God is and wants us to know in human form. And that's why the apostle John, in his prologue, calls Christ the word. He expresses to us who God is and what God is really all about. So that's what the word means. And notice the word with. God who had various... uh, I guess I need to go back to John. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word with means face to face. Literally it means face to face. Face. It means to be in the very presence of. So Christ was with God before creation. Christ was in the very presence of God the Father before creation. He was face to face with God before creation. And then you'll notice was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same, or he was in the beginning with God. He uses this word was in speaking of Christ. Now, you need to note in the margins of your Bible or your notepad or whatever it is that you're writing on. The word here is ain. The word here is ain, translated into the English, was. But it's a very specific word. The word was here means continual existence. It's an imperfect verb. It means having no beginning. It means to exist without a beginning. It means continual existence without a beginning. In other words, John said, and let me just simply translate it for you on the fly, John said before creation, Christ has always been. Christ has always been in personal fellowship with God. Christ has always been God. He has always been before creation in personal fellowship with God. The word was means to exist without a beginning. We'll look down at John chapter 1 verse 6 because I know you'll be scratching your head about that one. In John chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So you have the English word there again, was. Does this mean that John always existed? Does this mean that he was always named John? No. Well, why doesn't it? Because it's a different word. Well, you say, It's was right here in my Bible. Yes, but in the original Greek language, it's a different word. It's translated was without any justification. And why it's translated was without any justification, I don't know. I haven't talked to the translators, so I don't know. But it is a different word in the original. Here, the word is a yenito. It's not ain, it's a yenito. And the word ienito means to come into being or to exist with or from a beginning. So, there was a point in time when John came to be. Ienito. He came to be when he was born. But Christ has always been ain. He's always been. And yet both are translated was In the English. And again, why? I don't know. I have no idea why it's translated that way without justification. Just for fun, turn to John 21. John chapter 21. My plosives are popping. Sorry. John chapter 21. Beginning in verse 15, 16, and 17. Very familiar passage of Scripture to some of you. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonah, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again, A second time, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, if you simply read this in the English, and you do not take the time to study it in depth using other biblical tools like a Bible dictionary or a concordance that has Strong's uh, numbers in it and those kinds of things. This passage of Scripture will mean some very wonderful things, but you will not understand the depth of what it means. Jesus expresses in twice, his love for John, uh, his love for Simon Peter. He uses the word love, which in the Greek is agapao, agapao. And this form of love, this kind of love, agapao love, is superior love. It is infinite love. It is pure love. Love. It is unconditional, it is sacrificial, it is godly love. Peter's response to Jesus, you know that I love you, is not the same word. Peter does not respond to Jesus, I love you, agapao, like you love me, agapao. Peter responds with the Greek word philo. Philo. This type of love, this expression of love is inferior to agapao. It is temporal. It is conditional. It is human. It is kindred love. And yet both are translated love in English without justification. Why? I don't know. It just is. So it is important, dear friends. Bible reading is wonderful. It is great. It is inspirational. It's devotional. And it it helps many of us get through the day. But how much richer, richer Bible study can be to your heart, to your mind, to your spirit? To your fellowship with God and your service in the kingdom of God when you understand what is being conveyed through Scripture. So let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Philippians 2, verse 6. In speaking of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So whatever it is that form means and equality means, it, Christ Jesus was that infinitely. He's been that forever and he will be that forever. And it's important you understand that. It's important that you understand that. So what does form mean? Form is the word morphe and it means to possess the essence or the attributes of something or someone. It means to possess the essence or the attributes of something or of someone. John said Jesus Christ was Ain, which means He always has been and He always will be God. Because that's what he says in verse 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's always been God. He possesses the essence and the attributes of God the Father. He possesses the essence and the attributes of God the Holy Spirit. He is the very character and the very nature of God. As the Heavenly Father is God, as the Holy Spirit is God, so Jesus Christ is God. Because He is the form of God, Morphe. He possesses the essence, the the attributes, the character, and the nature of God Himself. He's not an angel created by God. He's not some spirit being Created by God. He is God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. He is the fullness. And the word fullness. He is the completion. He is the completeness of the Godhead in bodily form. He, he does not possess some aspects of God. He does not possess some qualities of God. But he is to the full extent God. That the Father is God. He is to the full extent God as the Holy Spirit is God. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the apostle writes, Who being the brightness of God, of his glory, and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Speaking of Jesus Christ. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, the brightness means the effulgence, it is the effulgence. It is the true, real extension. Christ is, in Hebrews 1.3, the true, full extension of God's glory. He is the expressed image, Hebrews 1.3. He is the exact essence of being, of the person of God. So we have in Colossians, we have in Hebrews, we have in John, the exact same idea that the Apostle Paul is expressing here in Philippians. And how there are individuals who profess to be Christian, how there are individuals who profess to be the people of God, who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, don't know the Bible. They don't know the Scriptures. (coughs) Because everywhere in Scripture, it shows us, it tells us, it reveals to us, it explains to us who Jesus really is. Amen. He is the form of God. Always has been, always will be. And now the apostle states that Jesus Christ is also equal with God. Philippians 2.6 He is equal with God. The word equal in the original language is Esos. Esos, not Esau, Bob, but Esos. Esos. It means the complement. It means as much as. So to be equal complements to being the form of. It's two sides of the same coin. And just like heads does not look like tails, heads is a part of tails. You can't have one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. To be equal with God is the same thing as to be in the form of God. It is complementary to the form of God. Now it's redundant to express it this way, yes, but it's redundant for a purpose. It emphasizes the truth that's being expressed. In the apostle Paul's statement. In saying that Jesus Christ is equal with God. It's the same thing as saying Jesus Christ. Is in. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> is in the form of God. They are the same in essence. They are the same in attributes. They are the same in nature. And in character. To be equal with God. Is to be God at the same level that God is God. Make sense? You understand what I'm saying? To be equal with God is to be God at the same level that God is God. Now, let me... Let me try to help you grasp this. We tend to think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as being three distinct, separate entities. Don't we? Yes, we do. We tend to think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as three distinct and separate entities, or three distinct and separate persons. They are distinct persons, but they are not separate persons. They are not separate entities. They are three persons, but they are one God. My Old Testament professor in college many, 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 many years ago, Dr. Hyatt, said it this way, the work of one is the work of all, and the work of all is the work of each. The work of one is the work of all, and the work of all is the work of each. We tend to think of God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, like this. But in reality, they're not like this. They're like this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one. They are not three separate from each other. In being equal. Again, they are at the same level. They are at the same level. God the Father superior to God the Son? No. God the Son superior to God the Holy Spirit? No. They are equal. They are at the same level. Let me ask you the question. How can God be greater than God? How can God be less than God? If Jesus Christ is... Is on a different or a lesser level than God, and Jesus Christ is God. How can God be unequal with God? How can one be greater than the other if all three are God? They're not. They're equal. They're equal. But they are separate? No, they are distinct persons. All three existed in eternity past. And all three participated in the creation of the universe. All three were involved in the Lord's baptism. Jesus was being baptized in the river. The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. And the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son. All three were present in the baptism of Christ. All three were involved in his resurrection. All three are present in glory this very moment. God the Father is on the throne. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit stands in front of the Father in heaven. All three will participate in the destruction of the universe at the end of time. And all three will create a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem when eternity begins. The work of one is the work of all. And the work of all is the work of each. Now... Again, why is this important for us to know? Why is this important for us to understand? Why is it necessary for us to wrestle with these kinds of things? Now, let me just explain something or express something to you. I don't understand all the mysteries of this. I've studied this all of my life. And I'm 68 years old and I still don't understand the depths of the mystery of the Trinity. The depths of the mystery of the Godhead. I continue to work on it, and God continues to reveal things to me so I can understand them better. But I don't know all of this stuff. But I do know what the Bible says about all of this stuff. And it's important for us to understand this, because these truths destroy false doctrines, And false theology of those who say there is no Holy Trinity, that Jesus Christ is not God, that the Holy Spirit as an it or some supernatural force and not a person, or that Christ the Son of God was an angel or a spirit created by God and therefore is not God. When you understand that he is in the form of God and that he is equal with God, you will understand that anything that does not elevate Jesus Christ to the level of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is a false religion. It's a false doctrine. It's a false theology. He is the Son of God. Fully God, fully man. He is the Son of Man. Fully God, fully man. He is the Christ, the anointed of God. He is Jesus, the salvation of God given to us. So in closing, Scripture proves four things. This passage proves four things. Christ has always been and will always be. No beginning, no end. He has always been. And he will always be. Two, Christ has always been God and will always be God. The same as the Father and the Spirit are God in essence, in attribute, in character, and in nature. He's not a created being. He's not a created angel. He's not some lesser demagogue. No, he is God. Number three, Christ became the man Jesus. Fully human in essence, attributes, character, but without a sin, nature. And four, In his resurrection, the physical body of Jesus Christ was perfected as an eternal, glorified body, and the glory that he had with the Father before he became clothed in human flesh was fully restored to him when he was raised from the dead. This is the Christ of Scripture. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the one that we believe in, this is the one that we trust. This is the Jesus Christ that we receive as Lord and Savior. This is the Jesus Christ who will one day and one day soon come and take us home to be in glory with Him. Amen Amen. and amen. Let's stand together. David, lead us in a song. How how good is this? Man, we serve a living God. Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. Amen. As we go into this week, let's sing about that (coughs) trinity. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Now, Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is truth. We pray, Father, that Your Holy Spirit will motivate us to chew on these things, to think about these things, to consider them again and again and again, so that that wonderful truth of Your Word can soak deep within our mind, our heart, our spirit. And we can come away appreciating Jesus Christ For whom he truly is. As we've come to the house to worship, may we now leave to serve, to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved.